Thanks for listening to this Waterstone message. Here at Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. We hope this message challenges and encourages you, and we would love to see you at one of our services on Saturday evenings at 5.30 or Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30. We are in the middle of a series that we are calling Love This Book, where over the course of the year of 2020, we are going to walk through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, start to finish, taking different highlights, different books, and showing the full story of God. And I'm incredibly excited about this series because I, I think even while the Bible is one of the, the, the most read books of all time, and even though the Bible is the highest selling book of all time, I think it is one of the most misunderstood and misused books of all time, right? I mean, we see this all the time on social media. I think it's a, it perfectly encapsulates how we misuse scripture. So sometimes we see people use scripture on social media and they use it as a morality uh, map, a roadmap to being a good person. And so they can list out the different things that the Bible tells us about how we are supposed to be good people, how we are supposed to behave. And not only that, but sometimes we see the Bible, I see it more and more as, as this kind of answer to all of your dreams coming true. And we treat the Bible like a series of principles that will allow us to live our best life now. And so you'll hear people say, get out your pens, we're gonna open the Bible today and I'll give you the seven keys to success in your life. Or today's message will show you how you can have the marriage you always wanted. Or how you can get the wife you've been dreaming about since you were 13. Right? And we treat the Bible like this series of principles that's designed to make our life better. Or, at its worst, we use the Bible as a weapon. We weaponize it and we turn it into something that, that proves our point. And you really see this on social media, especially in years like 2020 in an election year, right? Because people put this verse online and say, hey, this is the reason why you should never vote for this candidate. And then someone else uses the exact same verse and says, this is the reason why you should vote for that very same candidate. And we go back and forth and we use the Bible like, like slings that were shooting at one another, trying to get people to agree with us because everybody wants Jesus on their side. And everybody has an argument for why Jesus is a Democrat or Republican or why he agrees with your worldview. And we use it to, to, to attack anyone who disagrees with us. And while the Bible is truth. And while the Bible has principles and wisdom for life, at its core, that is not its purpose. At its core, the Bible is not a book of principles about how to have your best life. It's not a book about how to behave better. At its core, the Bible is a story about God's interaction with the world. At its core, it is not a book of principles, but a story about a person Jesus. And so I'm excited for this series because I think what it does is it allows us to step out of the way we usually interact with the Bible to see the whole story and to find our place in it, to move beyond behavior modification and move to a place where we join God's story. Because I think God's mission for our life, the way God wants to interact with our life is not just to change our behavior, it's to change our stories. That is what scripture was given to us for, to change the narratives that we tell ourselves about who we are and what the world is and why it is the way that it is. 
And so that's what we're gonna be doing this year, and I'm really excited for it. And to, to kind of dive in today, I think we have to understand where we've been in the stories. I said we're in the middle of the story, but really, we're at the very beginning. I mean, we were three weeks in, a year-long project. And so the first two weeks, Larry looked at creation and how God was creating the world, how God was at work in the world. He created the world in love and compassion and goodness, and when he created the world, he said that it is good, and it's a place for us to enjoy, a place for us to spend in harmony with him and with each other. And that's very different than the experiences we have most days. Because as we looked at last week, Nick walked us through the fall. And the moment that creation was broken, the moment that we as humanity chose to rebel against God, to define good and evil for ourselves, and to rebel against him, and, it, and creation came apart at the seams. Our relationship with God was broken. Our relationship with each other was broken. Our relationship with creation itself was broken. And we're gonna skip a little bit ahead in the story today to Genesis 12. But in order to get there, we have to understand part of the narrative from Genesis 4 to 12. Because what you see there is this downward spiral of sin and depravity, of humanity continuing to make the choice to rebel against God. And you see this, this is an image that the Bible Project put out, but there's just this downward spiral of evil, of humanity adding to its catalog of evil. So you see instances of violence and murder and oppression. You see sexual abuse, you see sexual immorality, you see people who are arrogant, you see people who are vengeful and wrathful. And the whole, things go so badly, so quickly. And the question looming over that entire section of scripture is, how will the curse be lifted? Because while, while creation continues on, it limps under the weight of the curse of sin and death. And the question is, how will it be lifted? How will death be defeated? How will sin be healed? How will we regain that relationship with God? Just where we drop into the story today, Genesis 12, where God calls a man named Abraham to be a part of his mission of redeeming and reclaiming the world that was broken, to reversing the curse of sin and death. So this is Genesis 12, where we pick up the story. The Lord said to Abram, now, if you're new to the church world and, and Abram sounds like a weird name, it's actually Abraham. God changes his name. And so when we talk about Abram, where I'm actually going to be talking about Abraham today, uh, just, just so you know, he says to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. The word of the Lord. And the beautiful thing about this passage is that it demonstrates, it shows us that God is a God on mission. God is a God who intervenes, who steps into the world, the world that we broke, to reconcile all things to himself. And you may be asked, how does God calling some dude named Abraham to go to a place that he's never been to before, to be a blessing and to be blessed and to have a great name, how does that resolve the fall? How does that solve the problem of the curse? It solves the problem of the curse because it demonstrates to us 
God chose to step into our story, to step into the fall and to redeem things and bring things back to the way they were originally intended. Now, it's so fascinating to me because when I think of the Old Testament and when I see people interact with the Old Testament, we get really uncomfortable with some of the stories we see of God there, right? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, some of the stories that we see of God and the stories we tell ourselves about Scripture is that the God of the Old Testament is wrathful and vengeful and spiteful, and he really likes punishing people. And God makes us very uncomfortable in the Old Testament. And so when we say God is on mission, we start to get images of God conquering and defeating and killing people who disagree with him. And then we get to the New Testament, and we see Jesus, and we go, oh, I like Jesus, Jesus is God after God went to therapy. I can get on board, right? Like, I can get on board with Jesus. He is nice. He makes God safe. And that's the story we tell. But it is such a misunderstanding of the story of Scripture that God, from the beginning, from the very beginning, has been at work to redeem and reconcile and bring all things back to himself. It's not a story of a vengeful God who then later gets nice and kind in Jesus. From the beginning, God has been on mission to reverse the curse of, and, of sin and death. And Genesis 12 is critical to that story because it is the first step that God takes towards creation, towards us, to bring us back to himself. It's the first steps of redemption. God chose to intervene and step into history. I've gotten just a little glimpse of that the last couple of weeks. This is a classic illustration that you've probably heard before, but it gives me a chance to talk about my daughter Camden, so I'm going to. It gives you a chance to look at a picture of my daughter Camden. She's such a goofball. She was trying to, we were trying to take her shirt off and she just started crawling, and so it ended up as a turban on her head. Hilarious. But she is at the stage, she's about seven months old, a little bit over seven months, and she is at that stage where she, her, her horizons, her world has expanded exponentially because she is learning to crawl, learning to pull herself up, learning to get around on her own. She's not just stuck on her back anymore like a potato. She can move throughout the world. And the challenge with that is if you spent any time around babies in this stage, whether your own or grandbabies or, or babysitting, you know that they have this incredible ability to find the one thing in the room they are moving around in that they are not supposed to touch, and they go after it. Her obsession lately has been power cords. I don't know what it is, but she sees a power cord, her eyes light up, and she is off to the races trying to get to that power cord so she can put it in her mouth. Christmas was a nightmare. It was terrible because she is so fixated on it. And she will, she will crawl through a room that's full of stuffed animals and colorful blocks and, and all the toys and gifts that, that her grandparents and that we've given her. They don't mean anything to her if there's a power cord in the room. We have rearranged our entire house so she has room to call, crawl and no access to power cords. It makes no sense. The TV's 20 feet away from the, the couch now. The couch is up against the wall. Also, she has the room she needs to crawl and to move around and to explore the world. Now here's the thing. When I see Camden crawling towards a power cord and grabbing it and putting it in her mouth, I don't just say, you know what? You made that decision. I'm just gonna abandon you to, to whatever may come and let you chew on electricity and see what happens, right? Like, I don't abandon her. And, and I don't punish her. Look at her. How would I punish a seven-month-old for crawling to an electrical cord. 
I don't. I step in and I say, hey, nope, can't have that. And that is what God has done with us. He has chosen to step in. He doesn't just abandon us to our decisions. He doesn't just punish us for the choices we make. Genesis 12 shows us that God is a God on mission who chooses to step in and to intervene. He chooses in love to not leave us on our own, but to be a part of what's happening in the world to redeem and reconcile and bring it back to himself. He's on mission. The other thing I think Genesis 12 does that's so important and, and such a key passage and why we've chosen to land on it is that, that it not only shows us that God is a God on mission, but it actually helps us understand what God's mission is. Because sometimes we make the mission of God very, very small. The story of God that we often tell is a story that starts somewhere in the middle where we say, you are a sinner Christ died for you to help you with your sin so that he, if he comes into your heart, he'll fix it up, he'll make it better, and he'll make you a person who, who doesn't drink too much anymore and who doesn't sleep with people they're not supposed to and doesn't cuss and doesn't yell at the Broncos. And, and we make it about this behavior modification of Christ coming into our lives to save us and to make our hearts better. Oh, and the good news is, is that if you do that, then when you die, you get to go to heaven and spend eternity with him, which is gonna be awesome. Oh, and also in the meantime, make sure that you try to tell as many people as you can about what Jesus has done in your life so that he can do the same in theirs. And hell fits into the story somehow, but we really don't wanna talk about it because it makes us very uncomfortable. So we'll just kind of gloss over that. And that's the story that we tell. But it is so small. And the thing about the story is while there's truth in it, it's like we come to someone and we say, oh my gosh, have you read this book? This is the best novel I have ever read. It's the best story I have ever read in my entire life. If you read it, it will change your life. It'll change everything about your life. But hey, um, as you read it, uh, before I give it to you, you actually don't need the first, uh, hopefully this works, you don't need the first 200 pages of the book they're not really that important. And, um, and then the, the middle's pretty good, but you don't really need the last 100 pages or so. So I'm just gonna take those out. And uh, okay, this book will change your life. This story is awesome. It's so good. And we expect that story to be compelling when they don't have the beginning, they don't understand God's mission, and then they don't know what the end is after they, they accept Christ into their lives. And we make it about this behavior modification rather than the grand story of what God is doing in the world. We make it so small and so insignificant. John Stodd, a famous pastor and theologian, he says, people have not stopped believing the gospel because they believe it to be false. They have stopped believing the gospel because they believe it to be trivial. When we have made the story of God just about fixing up our hearts and making us better people, there's nothing compelling in that story. The story of God is this big, bold story of God's action in the world to redeem the world and to bring it back to himself. It answers every ex existential question we have about where we come from and, and what went wrong and how things will be fixed and what our purpose is in the story. 
Because God is not just a God on mission. He is also a God on mission who invites us to be a part of that mission. He invites us to be the people of God and join that bigger story. Now, this is the point of the message where oftentimes we go to behavior modification. And these are the three things you need to do to be a part of the people of God. And while it may look like that on the surface, I hope that as we walk through these these elements, these characteristics, these identifiers of who the people of God are, we will see them as that, as identification pieces. This is who the people of God are. This is the way they live, not the things that they're supposed to do. It broadens the story and shows us our purpose. And I think you can see it in the life of Abraham in Genesis 12.1. It says this. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I think one of the defining characteristics of who the people of God are is that they are sojourners in this world. God's call to Abraham is to leave security, leave everything he's ever known, leave his people, his family, and his country. In the ancient world, that was everything. That was, the land was your sustenance. If you leave your country, you have no way of getting food. If you leave your people and your family, you have no protection, you have no safety net. God is calling Abraham to leave everything he has ever known to be completely dependent on him. The people of God are people who leave behind the things of this world that we can find our security and our identity and and our calling in for the calling God has for us to step into the unknown, to depend on God and what he has called us to, to take a risk and a step of faith. Can I ask you a question that may offend some? Thanks, I think someone just said sure. (laughs) The question is this, the question is this, how is your passion for God? Has your passion for God grown lean? Has your passion for God kind of waned? Do you feel distant from God? See, the uncomfortable truth for some of us in this room is that, that we feel distant from God, not because he has abandoned us, but because he called us to go and we opted out. We chose to stay behind. And God is a God on mission, a God of movement, moving towards the world, reconciling the world towards himself, and has called us to join him in that. And when we don't, he keeps going. He allows us to stay behind. He gives us the freedom not to join him. And the uncomfortable truth for many of us is that God called us to take a step of faith, to take a risk, to step into something that we were gonna be completely dependent on him. And we were too scared and we opted out And we felt distant from God ever since, not because he left us, but because we chose not to go with him. You see, for many of us in this room, the great danger of our faith is not, it's not that we will renounce our faith because we come across some new truth that disproves our faith. The great danger for many of us is that we will become too distracted that we will become too disengaged, that we will become too comfortable with our lives and our security and our safety and our family and our jobs, that we will miss out 
on taking the step and the risk of faith that God has called us to. And so the question for us in this room is, is if you have opted out, will you join God? Will you take that step of faith? Will you go? That is what God is calling us to. And and it starts, honestly, I, I think it's as simple as this. If you feel distant from God and feel like you opted out, just simply say this, God, where would you have me go? What would you have me do? It's a simple prayer, but, but if you want to get back on track, start with that simple question. Be willing to be uncomfortable and do what he has called us to do. I think the second defining characteristic we see of the people of God is, is not only are they sojourners, but they also trust God's promises. You see this in Abraham when, when God calls him to go, if we skip down to verses four, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Now, time out. If you go somewhere across the world and, and travel and go and you're 25, that's called an adventure. If you uproot your life and go someplace else and, and start over at 75, that's called insanity, right? Like, let's be honest. And yet sometimes the things God calls us to make no sense to our friends, to our family, and to our culture. Will we be willing to go? Abraham trusts God's promises and he goes. He took his wife, Sarah, his nephew, Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem, At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Notice this, he goes to the land and the Canaanites were in the land. The land is not Abraham's. Abraham is never gonna acquire the land for himself. And yet he trusts God's promise when he calls him to go. I love, we read the Jesus Storybook Bible to Camden when she goes to sleep at night, as long as we can keep her awake. And, uh, and it says this about Abraham. It says that, that Abraham trusted what God said more than what his eyes could see. I love that. Trusted God what he said more than what his eyes could see. See, fundamentally, the people of God, our relationship with God is a relationship built on trust and trust in God's promises. Now, I'm a former youth pastor. Classic illustration that we always use to explain the trust of God is is this, is that we've made faith in our context a noun. It's a system of belief and a series of things that we believe and we adhere to, and that's what our faith is. Biblically, faith is actually not a noun. It's a verb. It requires action. And the classic illustration of that is a trust fall. Has anyone in here ever done a trust fall before or seen a trust fall? Basically, it works like this. You have a group of people that sit um, beneath a high surface. You turn around, you close your eyes, and you fall back, and you let them catch you. You trust that they will catch you. You have faith that they will catch you. Here's a video demonstrating um, that, that idea of the trust fall. Trust fall. Okay, trust fall. Ready, set, go. 
Went the wrong way on that one. That's not exactly how a trust fall is supposed to go. You're supposed to fall back and the person catches you. But I think it's an important video, an important illustration for this reason, is that while some of us need to be reminded that we need to step out in faith and trust God, some of us in this room have taken that step of faith and we have gotten burned. We have fallen flat on our faces and ate pavement. And the problem with that is that that so many times when that happens, when we step out in faith and we fall and we think God wasn't there to catch us. But I'm not sure if that's always fair to God because I think sometimes we fall in the wrong direction. Sometimes we trust promises of God that are not actually promises. We come to stories in the Bible and we see God act a certain way and we, we make it a principle for how God will act in every circumstance, in every situation. The, the problem is not actually that God was not there for us. I think sometimes the problem is that, that we expected God to do something that he did not promise he would do. And that's a hard truth and, and I just have to acknowledge that, that when that happens and I've been there, it hurts I mean, it hurts deeply and it causes so much disorientation around who God is and his relationship to us. But the problem is, is that I think sometimes we trust God for promises he has not actually made. And God has made promises to us. There are certain things that we can find in scripture and in stories that he has promised to us. This is a couple things that I think we can always count on. The first is this, that he has promised to always be with us. Whatever our circumstances, whatever our suffering, whatever bad thing we are going through, God has promised that he will always be with us. He has also promised to forgive our sins, that if we repent, if we turn to him, if we ask him to forgive us, he will always forgive our sins no matter what we have done. That's a promise you can take to the bank. He's also promised to partner with us to redeem the world. He's not just left us on his own, but that he will work with us in partnership to redeem the world and accomplish this mission. He's also promised to return and that one day everything will be set right. He has promised that one day when he comes back, creation will be made whole, we will be made whole, our relationship will be restored, and we will be with him forever, which is the final promise, that he will resurrect those who believe in them and we can have eternity with him. Those are the promises God has given us. But the second list is is a list of promises I think we believe God has given us sometimes that he has not actually given us. And the confusion comes when we take stories and make them principles. So God has not promised to heal every sickness and disease in this lifetime. Though he can and he does, he has not promised to alleviate every illness, every ache, every pain. God has also not promised to protect us from suffering. He hasn't said that if we follow him, our life will be easy or that things will never go bad, or that we won't lose loved ones, or we won't have people abandon us or hurt us. He he hasn't promised that we won't suffer. He's also not promised to give us material prosperity. Though God blesses us with many good gifts, it is not a promise that he will give us those things. And then finally, God has not promised to make everything okay and work out in our favor if we follow him. 
He's not promised that if we follow him, that, that our lives will just be, be rainbows and sunshine and everything will always be good. You see, sometimes we, we trust God for things that he hasn't promised and then we're frustrated and angry. But we have to remember that, that stepping out in faith and trusting God is about trusting that he will do what he says he will do and be who he says he will be. But in the context of, of what he has promised, not our expectations that we place on him. So the people of God are a people who, who sojourn through this world, who have no home, and the people of God are a people who trust God's promises. And finally, the people of God are a people who exist for others. Genesis 12, two through three, gives us the call that God places on Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. Fundamentally, the people of God, their identity is people who live amongst the world, amongst the nations, amongst people who don't believe in God, and who live in such a way that they bless those people. Now, I don't know when this happened, and I don't know how we got off track, but for some reason, to me, it feels like Christians in America, in our evangelical culture, we have thought that our calling from God is not to bless people, but to be right. Somewhere along the way, we decided that our mission that God has called us to is not to bless people, but to be right, to have all the right answers and to make sure they know what truth is, and if they go astray from that truth, to point it out to them and say, I told you so. We're like the lifeguard who's at the pool that sees the kid running along the side of the pool and says, hey, I told you not to run, I told you not to run, I told you not to run, and then the kid slips and falls in the pool, and we say, I told you not to run, idiot, why did you jump in the pool and run? You saw the 10 rules that we have listed here, you didn't follow them, it's your fault, now you're gonna drown. God has not called us to be right, but to bless. We are called to jump into the mess knowing full well that people have maybe made the mess by the choices they have made. And we do that because that's what God did for us. He jumped into the mess for us, despite the choices we made. He didn't just sit there and say, hey, I told you not to do that, so now you're on your own, figure it out. We have been called not for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of the world and the nations, to bless the nations. That is fundamentally our calling as the people of God, to be a blessing. And I don't even think I really have to define the, the, the positive of that. We all know what it is like to have someone in our life who's a blessing to us. We all know what it feels like when someone blesses us. So the question is, how can you be a blessing to someone this week? Now, here's the good news as we wrap up, is that I, I've been a little hard today, and I, and I think we, we've made some missteps, and, and we've, I've wrestled with some of the things that, that we do or say that, that I'd like to push against in our evangelical culture. But here's the good news, is that all of us, no matter what steps we've taken, no matter how much we've made mistakes, no matter how much we have failed to be the people of God, the mission's not up to us. 
It's not up to us. God invites us to be a part of the mission. God uses us for his mission, but ultimately the mission rests on God. It's so fascinating in this passage, five or six times, depending on what scholar you believe, God says, I will do. I will bless. I will make your name great. I will. The only call is for Abraham to be a blessing through what God does through him. But all the pressure is on God. And I, and I don't know if, if you're a believer, if you, if you aren't sure what to make of the whole Jesus thing, the whole Bible thing, or if you've been a believer for 50 years, but so many times I see people say, I can't join the mission of God. I'm too bad. I, there's too much wrong with me. I've done too much wrong. Too many bad things have happened to me. There's no way I can join God on his mission. It's because we have this ideal vision of what we think faith is supposed to look like. And we think faith is supposed to look something like this, that God calls us, and as we follow God, we're gonna be transformed, and we're gonna be on an upward trajectory of a better and better person, we're back to that behavior story again, of following God, and he's just gonna redeem and make us better and make everything better until we get to heaven one day. And that's what faith is supposed to look like. And if it doesn't look like that, then there's something wrong with me. That's what we think the ideal is. This is what faith really looks like, the journey with God, right? I mean, that's actually what faith journey looks like. There are ups and downs and twists and turns. There are moments we fall on our face. There are moments that we have highs and mountaintop experiences. There are moments where we feel like we are seeing God face to face. And there are moments where we think we have nothing to offer God. I mean, you see it perfectly in the life of Abraham. God calls him. He takes this amazing step of faith to go to the land God will show him. And he, and he lives for God, and there's this, this huge passion and moment of, of, of living out what God has called him to. And then the very next story, Abraham goes from the place God had called him to to another land, and the ruler of that land sees his wife, thinks she's beautiful, and so Abraham says, you can have her, she's just my sister. I don't want to get killed, so you have her. And it's this low moment where he doesn't trust and depend on God, and he thinks that it's up to him. See, and that's the journey of our faith, these moments of highs and lows. But the problem is, is we make the story about our faithfulness and about how good or bad we are. The story is never about our faithfulness. The story is about God's faithfulness. The story is about God's faithfulness to us. And that despite whatever failings we might have, whatever missteps, whatever we think may be deficient with us, God still invites us to be a part of his story, to journey with us. So the question is, will you join God on his mission? Will you be willing to take that step of faith? God is not interested in perfection. God is interested in willing. Are you willing to be a sojourner in this world? Are you willing to trust the promises of God, even when you can't see their fulfillment? Are you willing to exist, not for the sake of yourselves, but for the sake of others? That is what God has called us to. Will you join him? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, I'm thankful that you, uh, you are a God on mission, that you are a God who didn't just abandon us to our decisions and our choices, 
that you are a God of a big story, a cosmic story of redeeming every inch of creation, reclaiming every inch of your universe. God, I pray that we as the people of Waterstone would be a people who are willing to join you on that mission, that we would not settle for a mediocre faith, that we would trust your promises and that we would live for the sake of others. God, give us the strength. Help us to know the truth that that it's not up to us, it is up to you. It is not about our faithfulness, it is about your faithfulness and help us live out and join that story for your great glory and for the sake of the world. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.